is alive, it is so relevant, and, and it is life-giving and life-changing. It influences, and it is infinite in its depth and in its wisdom. And to uh, give an account someday for my handling of it before you is a very weighty and sometimes painful thought. The story that we're examining together this morning is a continuation of what we talked about last week. It's Jesus being at this banquet, and he turns the tables, literally, on the banquet. And uh, Jesus, as the invited guest, uh, turns the trap that the Pharisees had set for him on them and takes this as an opportunity to teach them some very important things and us. So I kind of want to imagine today that we're sitting around those tables, too, kind of just as observers listening to what Christ has said, and let's begin by hearing the word of God together. Luke 14. One Sabbath, as he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away, and he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest uh, someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, uh, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when the host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many, and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring into the poor, excuse me, bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of God. It's not Aesop's fable. It's not Mark Twain. It's not a folksy yarn. It's the word of God with huge implications for everyone, for children, for teenagers, for all of us, not just those of us who believe that we're saved or know that we're saved, but there is a message here for everybody. This is an awkward meal. This is a tense situation. 
Can you, can you kind of sense it? Jesus is invited, just to review a little bit of what we talked about last week. Jesus is invited by the Pharisee after Sabbath meal. Typical that, like, when we invite people over to our homes or to a restaurant after, after a, a Lord's Day service. But the whole intention was to trap him with the dropsy man. They brought that guy there thinking Jesus will heal him and then will spin on him because we know he's going to heal his people because Jesus loves everybody and, and he's going to heal this guy, so then we'll have him. I mean, think of the idiocy of that. Once he heals this guy from this fatal disease, then we'll trap this loser. This is how ignorant these individuals are, how darkened their hearts are. Yet when Jesus comes, he heals the guy and silences them, right? They can't even respond because he's so wise in asking that question, well, should I heal him or not? If they say yes then their traditions fall apart. If they say no, they look like the losers that they are because they don't care about this guy who is fatally uh, diseased. By this time in the meal, after Jesus heals this person, then he speaks to the person, the people who are there, hey, I noticed when you guys came in, this is a paraphrase, this is the AJB version, uh, I noticed when you guys came in that you all sought the best seats. You shouldn't do that when you go to a party. Because what happens if you're sitting at the best seat and someone more important comes in and you'll have to, you'll have to be excused. Someone, someone will say, hey, this guy's more important. You go sit at the very far end of the table. And then you'll be embarrassed as you walk to the lowest. No, sit at the low table. And people are like, then he turns. We didn't get to this part yet, but we're going to kind of summarize it. He turns to the host and says, and I got something for you too, pal. Now, Jesus didn't say it that way, but it is, it is that tense. I think we should read that intensity into the situation. He, he heals the guy. He speaks to the people who are invited. Now he says, hey, you shouldn't just invite your best buddies to come because then they'll just reciprocate. It's not enough to be civil with people. You should be charitable with people. You should invite people that couldn't invite you back. Of what good is it when we just love other people who love us but be good to those who will never be able to repay you? And in that way, you'll have rewards, he says, at the resurrection. And it's at this point that basically Jesus has offended everybody in the room. And, and not because he's in the wrong. He's not wrong. He's just pointing out all of these errors. And remember, the Pharisees are sitting in Sabbath saying, we got Dropsy Dan ready, and it's going to be a trap when Jesus comes, and their, their meal is just shredded by the Lord. And so then you've got this guy in verse 15. His name is not mentioned, I wish it was, so we could give him a little nickname. And he is going to attempt to break the uh, awkwardness of the situation. And it's almost as if you can imagine him raising a glass and making a toast. Hey, 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 blessed is everyone who will eat in the kingdom of God. Like he's just kind of saying, hey, 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 enough of this... Uh, shredding of all of us let we're all gonna be in the kingdom right blessed is every it's that's the situation and then jesus proceeds to rip into this guy or at least correct his thinking referring to the marriage supper of the lamb or the great feast that is going to be awaiting all of those who are followers of god which we will celebrate in the presence of god in his kingdom is what this man is referring to this guy, it's like when you're in an awkward situation and someone has just said something and it's dead silent and you just kind of blurt something out because you just want to kind of change the subject. This guy's hoping that that statement will do just that. But in it, he is exposing his own arrogance because by saying that, he's assuming 
that everybody in the room is going to be there. Hey, you know what? I know we sought the best seats, and I know you're invited everybody else. But hey, we'll see you in that kingdom. Blessed are all of us who will be there. That's basically what he is saying. I want to turn to a couple of passages to explain this feast a little bit. And I'm going to say some things today that may be uh, hard for us to accept. I believe these things with all my heart, and I want to say them lovingly and kindly. Look at Isaiah chapter 25. Usually we just land in Luke and we stay there, but let me show you two passages that reveal this uh, heavenly feast because it was predicted in the Old Testament and because we say, well, how does this guy who's kind of making this toast, at least that's what it seems like to me. I know probably he's not necessarily doing that, but he's kind of interjecting this statement of blessing. What, what's he talking about? How does he know there is going to be a great feast? Remember, these are Pharisees, and he's invited other Pharisees. These are people who knew the Old, Tis- Old Testament scriptures very well. And in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, there is a prediction of this feast. Uh, Let me read a couple of verses for you out of Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on his mountain the covering that is cast over all the people, the veil that is spread over all nations. Well, what is this that he will swallow up? He will swallow up death forever and the lord god will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the lord has spoken it will be said on that day behold this is our god we have waited for him that he might save us this is the lord we have waited for him Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. What other book does this sound like? Where do we read this type of language? Revelation, no question. Revelation chapter 19. That's the other passage I would like you to read. I want to show you the two places. Now that's how the guy knew about it at the dinner. Because it was predicted in Isaiah 26. And in Isaiah, in Revelation, or excuse me, Isaiah 25. And in Revelation 19, it's actually prophesied about as well. Revelation 19, verse 9, and a couple verses following. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, the roar of many waters, the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, Bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It sounds very similar to what the guy says in the middle of the Sabbath meal, doesn't it? It was predicted in Isaiah 26. Who was it predicted to? Who are these people that are gathered in Isaiah 26 that are saying, this is our God, we have waited for him. Who are those people? Starts with the J. These are Jewish people. That's why the guy raises his glass. Because not only are, I'm, I'm, he didn't raise his glass in the scripture, that's why I'm kind of standing over here, but that's why he makes this statement. Blessed are those who are being the kingdom of God, and we are blessed because we are Jews, and besides that, we are religious Jews, 
and we will see you there. We're going to be there. All this awkward talk that Jesus is making right now, I know this is a little intense, but hey, blessed are those of us who will be in the kingdom. Go back now to Luke uh, 14. Let's see how Jesus responds to him. Jesus is correcting. Jesus is instructing. And perhaps this man is hoping to find some common ground with Jesus. Stop arguing and let's start agreeing, the man is thinking. But rather than agreeing, Jesus tells one of his most memorable parables. Most of the people in this Sabbath gathering believed that only Jews would be invited, and this man is congratulating them, almost like saying, we'll see you in the air, you know, pass the bread, uh, let's get on with this supper here, because it's just prefiguring all that we're going to enjoy in the kingdom. Let us note this once again, that the most scorching statements that Jesus makes in the scriptures are not to quote-unquote sinners, they are to the moral, religious hypocrites. These are the people that Jesus had no stomach for. The insincere, pretentious, religious people. He demonstrates great patience and kindness to those who admit their need for grace, but to those who do not think that they need it, he, he rejects them. This is, predict this is uh, stated for us in James 4 and 1 Peter 5. He gives grace to the humble but he opposes you want god to oppose you then be proud because that's who god opposes now here's how the outline will go today there's an invitation there's excuses then it's filled up then they're left out okay invitation number one excuses filled up left out let's uh let's jump into this text here and start talking about it great story i know you're familiar with it and hopefully we'll point out some things that will just encourage you the invitation. Okay, the invitation is given in verse 16 and 17, and actually, if you read it very carefully, there are two invitations that are given. You see that in verse 16 and 17. Uh, in 16, it's, uh, and this is after the guy gives his little statement, and they say, hey, a man once had a great banquet and invited many, okay? And then the time for the banquet came, and he said, now it's time to come. So there are two invitations. There are two separate invitations. He invites many and then he prepares the, 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 the feast, and then he goes back to them and says to the ones who were already invited, okay, now it's ready, come. You see those two invitations? This is a critical part of the story. There are two separate invitations, and this was customary in that culture. A man who was hosting a great banquet would send out the first invitation, which would almost necessitate or guarantee a yes. I mean, this was, to go to a luxury feast like this would be something that you would not turn down. So when that first invitation came, yes, 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 yes. It's almost like I got the guest list now. I'm going to go prepare. And then when the lambs are killed and the food is prepared and everything is ready, then I'm going to go back to those people who were invited and already said they would come, follow so far, to say, now you come. Those are the invitations. So this is what is pictured. The man in the parable is, okay, we're, gonna, we're trying to do the symbolism now. This is where you answer. The man in the parable is, well, or God, it's, it's the I believe it's the Father, but it could be Christ. It's, in, in, in any case, it's God giving a great feast, which is symbolic of the fellowship and joy and satisfaction that comes in this relationship with him. And it also symbolizes the, the future feast to come. But it's, 
it's not, I, I don't think the primary thing is, you know, the ribs and the chicken and that. The primary thing is we're gathered in the presence of God and fellowshipping with him. We have joy and we are ultimately satisfied. And he is giving this feast for other people as a demonstration of his grace. Okay? So the first invitation goes out and it is gone out to the Jews. And it has gone out to them through the promises of the Old Testament. Think about the parable. When was this first invitation given? It was given from Genesis 3.15 all throughout the Old Testament in the promises that a Savior was coming. And remember that these promises were primarily given to Jewish people. Now, there were pockets of Gentile people that were saved. Ruth, Rahab, Ninevites. There, there's pockets of people. But generally, it was to the Jews. And this is written for us in Ephesians chapter 2. You're familiar with this verse. We studied it very in depth a couple years ago on Sunday night when it mentions these phrases about Gentile people in verse 12. You are separated from God. You are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You are strangers to the covenants. God made a covenant with Abraham, with David. These are Jewish covenants. These are not Gentile covenants. There is no hope for Gentiles. They are without God. They are far off. And maybe this is a reason why Joe in the Sabbath lunch says, blessed are us because we're going to make it to the feast because we are Jews. That's almost what he's saying. In John 5, verse 39, Jesus says that the Old Testament, quote, bore witness of him. In Matthew 15, 24, he says this, I was sent to, quote, the lost sheep of Israel. When Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he says to Timothy that the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, are what made him wise unto salvation. The Old Testament is the, is the prediction and the promise that a Savior is coming. The invitation in Isaiah 55 is given to come and drink freely of and have bread without price and be satisfied the messiah will come isaiah 53 as god's suffering servants to bear away our sins and make the possibility of this feast a reality so invitation number one is given throughout all of the old testament and these jews who are gathered at that sabbath feast knew all about the invitation and they had basically already said we're coming are you found this so far? When, when that guy comes, we're all in. And now he's sitting right with them. And now he's saying, the second invitation, if you look back at the parable, everything is ready. Everything is ready. Remember when he comes? The kingdom of God is here. It is at hand. Repent. He is about to make the way through the veil that is his flesh, Hebrews tells us, so that all can come to God. Everything is ready. What a wonderful invitation. He will complete the work that has been promised in the Old Testament. And when salvation is performed, the invitation is given. And the question then becomes, now think about this with me. The invitation has been given in, in the Old Testament 
And now everything has been made ready. Christ is ready to perform all of those promises. He is ready to do all those things. God has prepared him this body to fulfill all that has been predicted. Everything is now ready. And the question that is to be asked of everyone is, do you want to come to this feast? Do you want to come? The question is on their willingness to respond to the invitation. Okay, the invitation is being given. Will you come? I want to tell you two things that I believe very, very strongly, and I will hold to these things till the day I die, regarding the invitation and who can come and who will come first. Let's talk through these things. I believe that God has sovereignly elected those to be saved before the foundation of the world in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. And the reason God must do this is because all human beings are spiritually dead and cannot respond. They cannot respond to spiritual truth. Those in here who are spiritually dead cannot respond to spiritual truth unless God first makes them alive so then they can respond. They cannot come. We cannot come. I could not come. It's not as though I was sitting in that church down at First Baptist Romeo and the pastor is speaking about hell and I said, you know what, I think that's a great idea because I am spiritually dead. All of my salvation is credited to the grace of God. We can't sing things like, he will hold me fast, grace greater than our sin, and then at the same time kind of congratulate ourselves because we were wise enough to come to the decision to finally follow after Christ without any divine intervention at all. God is the one who intervened in my sin-dead soul and revived me so I could respond to the truth. So when the invitation was given, do you want to come, I said yes because God chose me. I believe that with all my heart. But I also believe this. And now you're going to say, you are illogical. You're going to be like Spock. That is very illogical, Pastor. Uh, anyone, I believe this secondly, anyone who is unwilling to respond to that invitation has only themselves to blame. Okay? You see why that sounds illogical? Well, if God didn't choose me, then it's not my fault. That's not what Scripture teaches. I believe what the Bible says. God is not at fault. And God sends no one to hell. It is the rebellious, unwilling sinner who sends themselves to hell. Logically, it makes no sense, but I'm not talking logically. I'm talking biblically. Ephesians 1, 4, X, uh, 13, 48. All kinds of scriptures, the word elect is used as an adjective to describe God's called out people. It's used as a verb to describe what God says. If I uh, handed out a platter of candy to each one today, and you, I said, you may pick one, you are making a choice. That is the exact word that the Bible uses to select out from. And again, we, say, we, we might say things like, that's not fair. I want to tell you right now, you do not want God to be fair with you. For God to be fair damns everyone to hell. I mean, if I, if I raise my hand and say, God, that's not fair. I mean, none of us deserve God's grace. 
We don't want his fairness. We want his mercy. We want his mercy. The reason people reside in hell today, and the reason why maybe some in this auditorium will reside in hell in the future, and perhaps many in this community will reside in hell in the future, is because of their unwillingness to respond to the invitation. Well, God didn't choose me. Get over that. You know, I've given the gospel out here for 10 years, and you know that I say at the end of the gospel message, will you accept this? I don't say hey, anybody in here elect? Uh, I'll talk to you afterwards. You know, I don't go door to door in Romeo summer after summer and just look for elect people. I tell anyone who will listen, will you receive this wonderful invitation of God's grace to forgive your sins? And will you receive it today? Because if you don't, you could end up in eternity separated from him forever. We just read it in our statement of faith this morning. It is their unwillingness to respond to the gospel that condemns them to hell. This is proven through a theological term called concurrence. Concurrence is the idea that God does everything and brings about all things according to his own will and uses even the choices of human beings to accomplish that will. And I'll explain it to you through two uh, very critical Bible illustrations. Okay? I believe that God ordains evil, that God has ordained, in a sense, sin. That does not mean he is responsible for sin or to be blamed for sin. In other words, when God created all things and Lucifer rises up and says, you know what, I think I'd like to be God for a while. Why does he, why does he get to be God? God didn't all of a sudden, oh, what am I going to do? I did not foresee this. I mean... The rebel this is this is at the core of men and women's rebellion is I reject a God who can do whatever he wants. I reject a God who has ultimate sovereignty and ultimate authority because I want to be the ultimate authority. So when Lucifer did that, it was all in the plan of God. He's not to be blamed for it, but he did ordain it. Think about these two old these, these two stories. In the Old Testament. Joseph's brothers envied him, hated him, lied about him to their father, pretending that he had been slaughtered by a beast, uh, sold him into slavery, continued this facade with their father for years and years, and they are responsible for those sinful choices. Yet when they come to Egypt at the end of the uh, book of Genesis, because of the famine that is happening, and they come to Joseph, Joseph says, you did evil, but God meant this for good. Were the boys responsible for their decisions? How did God get Joseph to Egypt? He used and maybe even ordained, in a sense, these men choices to bring about his purpose. That is a minor illustration compared to the greater one. What is the most evil, most wicked act in all of human history? What is it? The crucifixion of our Lord. The innocent Lamb of God taken and slaughtered by wicked men. Is Judas to be blamed for this? This isn't a hard question. Is Judas to be blamed for this? No question. Is Pilate? Yes. Herod? Yes. Soldiers? Of course. But who is the one who brought this about? 
Right? Was there any question when Christ came to the earth that he was going to go to the cross? No, because God had already planned all this. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4. It says something like this. It's a paraphrase. God delivered him up, and you by wicked hands have taken him. Well, Judas can't say, well, I never had a choice. Right? God had planned all this, and I was going to be the one to betray him. When the moment the ca- that came, the soldiers came and says, hey, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. You tell us where that guy is. Did Judas have a choice? No question. He did. And he's responsible for it. And he's burning in hell today because of it. Not because God and his sovereignty, but because of his rebellion and unwillingness. That's the idea of concurrence in the Bible. That somehow God brings about all things according to his will, using human choices to do so. I can't explain it beyond that. I'm glad I can't because then I would be seated in the throne of God. But I worship a God whose ways are higher than my ways. And I am not like, it, it, it's like when, when I, if I were to make a Lego set and then put it together and the Legos would say, why did you make me a car? I would have much preferred to be a boat. I say, you're Legos. I, I can do whatever I want with you. I am the creator. And in Romans 9, Paul uses that illustration where he says, what it, does the clay say to the potter? Hey, why did you make me like this? The potter can make a pot for a dishonorable use. The pot, potter can make a pot for honorable use because he is the one who is in control. And basically, at the end of Romans 9, he says, just shut your mouth before God. So I say all that to this, to ask this, and to say this about the invitation. The, you are being invited. All of you are being invited. The Lord invites you. Will you come? It is all on you. You are invited right now to repent of your sin, to receive the salvation that Christ has made ready. And if you do not, you will go to hell because of your own unwillingness to repent, because you are too proud to admit you need Jesus. Second, let's talk about the excuses that are made. So the invitation goes out. And now the people start making excuses. I mean, again, this would be a high honor to be invited to something like this. This part of the story actually seems absurd, like Jesus is making a joke with no punchline. Remember in a sense that all the people sitting around that table have already agreed to come, but now are sending their regrets when Christ comes, and it doesn't appear to be the party they thought it was going to be. Three excuses. Number one, I have bought a field and I must go look at it. Number two, I bought five oxen. I must go see them. Number three, I'm married and I cannot come. This is where it kind of starts to sound like a joke. You're offered a luxury feast and you're not going for these reasons. Now it is true that someone in those days might buy a piece of property and it wouldn't be finalized until a final inspection would be made, but who, who is going to buy a field without first looking at it? Who is going to buy oxen without first trying them out? Even the marriage excuse is weak. You think the wife wouldn't have been invited to come along as well? I'm trying to put it in a way <clears throat> maybe that we can understand it so we can get to the heart of why these people are making these excuses. Um, uh, <laughs> I hesitate to say this. I'm not saying this just because I'm using this as an illustration. Take it at that. So Saturday's my birthday. What if somebody came to me and said, hey, Andy, I got a couple of Red Wings tickets and uh, a coupon to Giordano's Pizza. Want to go to Detroit with us Saturday afternoon? Um, you know, 
I, I'd really like to, but I just bought five used cars, and I got to go see if they run. It makes no sense. Uh, these, we've had a lot of snow days, and so a couple of times, uh, Britt and I have turned on this game show in the morning that we we've never seen, you know, and it's this uh, where they see the curtains and they got to decide if they want the trips or if they want to exchange it for a donkey or whatever, and and uh, we always are cheering that they get a donkey, and and uh, it, it reveals trip to Iceland, and everybody cheers and say, oh, you know, I'm sorry, that's the weekend I'm straightening my garage. I mean, you, people just don't respond that way. When people make excuses like that, what are they really saying? They're really saying, I just don't want to be a part of it. I just don't want that. Something else is more important to me. The point of the excuses that are made to the Lord are not that they could not come, but that they didn't want to. They just didn't want to. This is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about why do people go to hell? It, they go to hell because of their own unwillingness to respond. Think about it. Many of you, many of you girls and, and, and kids, teens, you've been sitting in church now for a couple years, and I give the gospel a lot. And here's another invitation to you. you. The invitation is going out, and if you don't respond, it's because of your unwillingness. Some adults have been sitting in here for years and heard the gospel week after week. The reason you will go to hell is because you were unwilling to respond. It is always only the unwillingness in our hearts that keep us from responding. Why is there this great opportunity and so few people are responding to it? Why is it? They don't want to. Right? They just don't want it. They want something else more. And the two primary things they want more are possessions and relationships. Those are the two things. And interestingly enough, we're coming to a sweet section in Luke. I mean, just great stories. We're going to come to the rich young ruler who wouldn't come to Christ because of his possessions. In fact, next week, it talks about hating our family in comparison to loving Christ. Both these possessions and relationships, which are distractions, will soon be dealt with in Luke's gospel that keep people from responding. Think of the simple things that kept these people from coming to Jesus. A field, an ox, a wife. And think of the foolish objections that arise in your hearts when you think about not wanting to come. I'm talking to a person in an evangelistic way over the last couple of months, and I think I've expressed this to you, well, will I have to start coming to church? You know, and, and the idea is, like an hour's worth of time is keeping a person from coming, or a change in their particular lifestyle. Oh, it is so foolish. The luxury feast awaits, and we make these wild excuses. Third, filled up. I just urge you to respond. I'm trying to, I'm trying to say it in several different ways, but I just urge you to respond. So in verse 21 to 23 of the passage, the servant comes back and explains to the master what these people are saying, and he becomes enraged. Well, will the feast fail? Right, the preparation has been made. Think about it. In the, in the Old Testament, all of the, uh, the first invitation is going out to the Jews, and now it's ready, and no one is coming. Think about John chapter 1. Um, he came unto his own and his own received him not. Right? His own received him, they didn't want him. So will the feast fail? 
will the man of the house say, look, I've prepared all this and, and no one's coming. He's going to go out and make sure it is filled up. And this is where the gospel, praise God, comes to the Gentiles. I mean, this is, it's almost like, thank you, Jews, for rejecting the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. Praise God for that. The feast has been prepared and people will come. And this, of course, is symbolic of the Jewish rejection and the gospel invitation getting wider and wider. And now he is going to invite the unworthy, the afflicted. And just as he mentioned earlier, he's going to invite those who could never repay his kindness. Because the guy who's raising his glass at the toast and says, blessed are those who are going to be in the kingdom, is thinking, I deserve to be there. And we who are afflicted and unworthy know that when we are in the kingdom, it is not my worth is not in what I own. We just sang it. But it's in the cross. I rejoice in Jesus, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I rejoice in him. I don't want any other. My satisfaction is him alone. We're not going to get to heaven and pat each other on the back and say what a great job we did in getting there. All of our attention we focus on the Lord and his magnificent grace he has invited those who could never repay. His invitation does not come to the moral religious insiders, but to the poor, bankrupt outsiders. And this is the type of Christian charity that we must express to others and reflect the grace of God by being friends with and inviting the wicked, the forgotten, the undeserving and unworthy in our eyes. And we must, as the scripture says here at the end of the parable, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in. Now, at the end of verse 23, there is no explanation of what happens there. Do you see that? He says, hey, go out and invite all these other people, the, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And we, he says, we did that. We'll go invite others and compel them to go into my house. And there is no verse 23b where it says, and they did that and a lot of people responded. Because that hasn't happened yet. When Jesus said this, it's going to start happening on the day of Pentecost and throughout the church age, when we go out, and who are we supposed to go out and invite? The crippled, the lame, the bankrupt, the blind, these people that, that need Christ. Not, it's like, let's stop wasting our time with moral, religious people who think they have no need of Christ and start focusing on these down-and-outers, these ones we think are undeserving of the gospel, and go out and compel them. It means to force to grab, it's like to convince them by persuasion. They're almost going to be like, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus doesn't really love people like me. Yes, he does, yes, he does, yes, he does. And he's inviting you to this wonderful feast. Will you come? And so many times we as Christians have no time for those dirty, wicked sinners. We'd much rather have a family of five that carries their Bibles and looks like us come into the church instead of the hurting and hopeless and what we believe to be perverted, unworthy people. Well, what were we before Christ? For crying out loud. Who is going to be inviting these outcasts? It is the merciful God of grace who does that. These are the people Christ came to save. And God's heart's desire, verse 23, is that his house be filled. Second Peter 3, 9, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The message that Grace Baptist has and must always proclaim to everyone, especially to those we think are unworthy, is God is gracious and wants you to come to his table 
Will you come? You are invited. And then it's on them. Then it's on them. We're not doing much inviting. We've got to do a better job at that. Fourth, left out. We've got to finish. We've got to finish. So the table is filled up. Can you imagine? I mean, if you thought the table Sabbath feast was awkward before Jesus started this parable, I mean, what's it like now? These guys aren't dimwits. They know exactly what Jesus is saying. Basically saying, you guys don't want any part of me. Because that's exactly what you're going to get. And instead, we'll go invite Dropsy Dan. And I'll go invite Bent Over Betty. And I'll go invite Gentiles. <gasps> Those dogs. I'll invite women. Sinful women. Who've been married five times. I'll invite tax collectors. The silence at the table must have been palpable. The one who had just toasted their own presence at the feast find themselves excluded from the joyful fellowship. Remember, in whatever version of Scrooge you like to watch or read, I can't remember which ghost it is, takes him to the Cratchit house where they're having a celebration. And there's joy and there's fellowship. And even though there's trouble, there's everybody's happy with each other. And Scrooge is looking in the window, an outsider excluded from that joy. That's, that's in some small sense the picture of those who are apart from this wonderful relationship that we enjoy with Christ. They have been invited once through the Law and the Prophets. They've been invited twice the actual presence of Christ. I mean, think about that. These individuals are seated with Christ at a feast. And by his grace, he is lovingly inviting them to come and they are still rejecting him. And in fact, not only just rejecting him, they are going to be the ones that kill him. But they preferred things and their relationships over the Lord. They, in fact, toasted themselves, acting as if they wanted to be in the kingdom when they longed for this kingdom. Follow what I'm saying? The guy is almost like saying, blessed are all of us who will be in the kingdom. When in reality, his heart didn't even want that kingdom. His heart wanted this kingdom. His heart wanted the praise of men and the authority that came from his position. They really longed for the comfort and adulation of this world while they pretended to want the other one. And is it possible that you all a moment ago sang, when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God praise than when we first begun, and you don't really even want that. You are much more comfortable here. Like we said about compartmentalizing in Sunday school this morning. Like, this is good from 10.30 to about noon, but the rest of my life is mine. Then you don't even really want the kingdom. And it's that hypocrisy that will leave you on the outside looking in. And it's not just that you're on the outside looking in at some frosted window, sad that you can't be a part of it. You will actually be tortured for your sins for all of eternity separated. What did we read in the, in the uh, statement of faith? It fits so well. It's from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The souls of unbelievers remain after death in conscious misery. You don't just go into the ground to be eaten by maggots and, and act as if you're sleeping for the rest of eternity. You miss out on it all. And you'll be raised from that grave at the end of millennium to the final judgment, cast in the lake of fire. Here's sad words. Not to be annihilated. They'll wish for that. You'll wish for that. 
Just put me out of my misery. Like we do for animals that are suffering. You will beg for that. And instead you will have nothing to look forward to but an eternity of being separated from the presence of God. And this will be finally and firmly fixed. And yet the invitation goes out right now. And we just say, I just got more important things. And I might be embarrassed if someone knows I'm not a Christian. Can you imagine the moronic attitude that that is? Constantly, Jesus confronted false religious professors and urged them to respond with true repentance. So I ask you today, will you finally abandon everything, turn your backs on the things of this world, and embrace the invitation of our blood-stained Savior? And if not, verse 24, you will never taste of the banquet. And the line that judges say when they condemn a prisoner to death, May God have mercy on your soul. We'll have no valid worth in your life. You know, it, it, we, we think about that when people commit this horrible crime and we're, you're condemned to death, and may God have mercy on your soul. That cannot even be said because the time to receive his mercy is now. It's not sometime in the future. God help us all. Let's pray. Father, how happy we are to be invited and how grateful we are for the grace of God which reached into our lives and brought us the mercy and grace for our salvation. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for his sacrifice on the cross for my sins. Oh God, I'm such an unworthy recipient of your grace. Look forward to spending eternity praising you for your forgiveness of my sins. And I would ask, Father, for each one of us that we would do two things. First, respond to the invitation if that's necessary. God, if there's somebody in here who needs Christ, may they not be deceived. May they be convinced finally, firmly today, once and for all, to respond to that invitation and receive your grace and escape. And then secondly, Lord, take this gospel message to others before it is too late. You've given us such a weighty responsibility to just go tell people how they can be saved, to tell them they're invited. May we never look at one person in this world and believe they are unworthy or undeserving of the gospel. May we go out in the highways and hedges and, and compel people not to come to church primarily, but to respond to the invitation of Christ. They might feast on his banquet, be satisfied fully and finally, and, and receive the joy and blessing that comes from having their sins forgiven. God, it is, it is our heart's desire that this church be filled with people like that. And you have given us the responsibility of taking this good news to this community, and may we not shirk that responsibility, but perform it as you've commanded us to do, and please give us fruit for our labor. Please, even in this congregation, let there be one today respond to the gospel. And in the weeks to come, please, may there be a harvest of souls that repent of their sins and trust Christ. May this be a day that changed someone's life, God. I pray that, that the word of God would take root in their hearts and they would, they would respond in the right way to what we've shared today. Above all, we are so thankful for Jesus. 
just overwhelmed at his love and his kindness to us. We're thankful that even though we've sinned against this week and sinned with the knowledge that we're saved, we've been we found forgiveness still. But please, please remind us of these great truths as we leave this place. And give the one who is unsaved today no rest until they find their rest in Christ. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen.